Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Great to be with you again and great, Philip, to have you with us again. Yeah, it's been good to be back again after a week away with Launch. Tell us a little bit about Launch. We mentioned it in one of our earlier episodes. What is Launch and how did the week go? It's a conference we run up at Katoomba. It was great to have it a, a residential conference now, being post-COVID in a sense, uh, where we had about 85 Students who have just left the schooling, they're just starting off as the first week as kind of adult life that happens, and about 25 or so leaders uh, who are university students, basically, and we had a week of Bible uh, teaching and of prayer and of discussions about what adult life's going to be. It's, it's the launching into adult life as Christians. But it was a great week of, uh, of a terrific time, uh, especially watching the uni students teaching and modelling and sharing the way of life for those who are just a one, two, three years younger than themselves. That's great to hear. So it's launch, it's for school leavers, and it happens about this time each year. Yes. First week of school going back is when the school leavers suddenly realise they're no longer going to school. because their siblings are, but they're not anymore. And so it's th- it's the final School leaving. You, yeah. you leave school when the exams. You leave school at the at the formal. You leave school, but this is you really have left school now, and you are now into something adults. new. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, uh, listeners, put that in your minds and diaries for next year. You've missed launch for this year, but if you have students, you know people at your church or in your family or network, who are in year twelve this year and are going to be launching off in twenty twenty four into adult life. Just bear in mind this conference is on around this time every year. It's great to hear that it went so well. And we had a terrific time also there introducing the uni students to the Christian groups in all the campuses. So Richard, uh, so Richard Chin, who's the, head, who's the General Secretary of AFES, was the other speaker with me for the week, and he represents in one sense all of AFES work. But we had the, the local representatives of each of the university campuses to be able to meet up with the students so they arrive on campus already knowing, knowing people. Yeah. Some of the others, of course, weren't university students, so we talked to them about their TAFE courses or their work. Excellent. Well, before we get on to our main topic today, which is about gambling and gambling reform, I thought it would be good to look at some of the feedback and correspondence we've been getting in the few weeks you've been away. Uh, one of them came a few weeks ago now, and we just haven't had a chance to get to it, but I wanted to throw it to you. It was in response to the edition that we put out uh, on where do we stand? What are the kind of core gospel doctrinal sort of boundaries, as it were, that mark out who we are and how do we work out who to work with and so on? And uh, Rodney from Western Australia wrote in and said, I've recently become a pastor here in Perth, uh, and there's something I couldn't help wondering as I read this post about where we stand, and that is, how does it all fit within the broader history of the church, and specifically the historic creeds and confessions? What I'm thinking is that our unity is expressed in time between God's people, but also beyond time, as God's people were united to the church of all ages, and he mentions the historic Nicene and Athanasian creeds and so on. So he says, my question is essentially this, how important are or should be the historic creeds and confessions of the Christian faith in determining our tribal boundaries in quote marks? Uh, it's a good question, Rodney, to bring out to us and an important one in one sense. The creeds and the different catechisms and confessions of faith that have come in the different centuries are historically limited in a way that the scriptures aren't. 
they are answering particular questions. They are a response to particular heresies. And of course, to some extent, the heresy that they're responding to has set the framework of the creed. And so the creeds will be talking about things in a way that is slightly different than the way the Bible is talking about something, because it's from the Bible addressing a particular problem. In our day and age, those kinds of problems are often resolved so that they're not the issues that people are wrestling with anymore. In my own confession of faith as an Anglican, there is a lot about sacramentalism in the Catechism, which rarely do teenagers today or even adults ever discuss. But at the time of the Reformation in England, justification by faith alone was fought out over the issue of the sacraments. That's what you went for the, went to the stake for. Yes, yes, they, they went to the stake for the sacraments rather than justification by faith alone, though it was because of justification by faith alone that their view of the sacraments was so important. One was an expression of the other. I think for those who are going to go into theological education, those who are going to be pastors, those who are going to be the representatives of particular Uh, denominations or institutions, they need to be thoroughly educated in those confessions of faith and able to articulate what they are and why they state the gospel in the fashions and forms in which they do. But I don't think that this is the best way to educate our congregations today because it is giving us confessions about yesterday's problems rather than today's problems. And secondly, They're not giving us confessions of what the Bible teaches and how it teaches itself. And so there is no passage on the Trinity. I believe God is three persons and one God. I am firmly committed to the Trinity. But if I was teaching the Bible chapter by chapter, I won't actually have a chapter on the Trinity. I read the Trinity and the Trinitarian understanding in its hostility to Arianism, into the scriptures and from the scriptures, but it's not what the scriptures teach. And so there is a sense in which these very important historical creeds and confessions, and they are very important and they are tribal markers of the Reformed Church as opposed to the Lutheran, as opposed to the Presbyterian, as opposed to the Anglican, they are tribal markers, but they are the tribal markers today for professional Bible teachers rather than for congregational life. I suppose occasionally you'd, you'd have an Arian popping up. Um, it still happens today. And though having those historical creeds that so clearly articulate how Christians have thought through what the Bible teaches about God's person and the divinity of Christ and so on, that's very useful to be, as a rule of thumb and as something we can go back to and say, this is what we've established already. And that helps us to recognise Bishop Jake's that your um, your anti-Trinitarian stance is outside the pale of Christian thought. So it can be useful, but... Oh, it is useful, and if we don't ever refer to them, then over time we'll get Arians back again <laughs> because we've never taught people the truth of the Trinity. So it is a useful thing to be uh, teaching people. But we're supposed as Anglicans to uh, recite the Athanasian Creed, I think it's 13 times a year. I've never been in an Anglican church that actually does that. In fact, most Anglican churches never give us the Athanasian Creed. And when I've introduced it into any church, as I have in churches, um, they are horrified because 
it actually talks about people not being saved. It talks about people who do not believe these things are actually going to hell. And the shock and horror of it is not about the Trinitarian views, but about the view that there is a salvation and there is a damnation and what you believe matters. That's the bit that upsets them. And it's almost for that reason worth having the Athanasian Creed said because it's a, it's a great creed of Trinitarian truth that I would want people to hear and understand. But it is also very important that it is laying out the essential nature of Trinitarian belief to Christian thinking, which is as important as the particular articulation of it. Yes, it's very interesting. I haven't heard the Athanasian Creed recited very often at all in my many visits to different churches over the last 30, 35 years. In fact, it was only back at St. Matthias in the day that I can remember us doing it from time to time. Yes. Well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> well, you, know, you should thank me. Yes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you should. But when I introduced it into the cathedral, there was a great shock horror because, well, as, as an Anglican leader, uh, it seems to me the Anglican boundary markers should be referred to and taught from time to time. But fundamentally to... Uh, where Christians are standing in the 21st century, our problems are of a different character and different magnitude than those discussions. Very helpful. And thank you, Rodney, for that excellent question. Our topic today is a little different than creeds and Athanasius. It's gambling. <laughs> that is a little different, A little yes. change of gears yes. there. Yes. At the very moment at which we're recording this, we think just about the Premier of our state is giving a statement about his government's policy that they're taking to the next election on gambling and particularly on anti-gambling measures to reduce people's access, in particular to poker machine or gaming machine gambling. It's a hot topic in our current uh, society. Of course, it's always been a topic in society, gambling. And, and I think it's worth us talking about, as Christians, how do we respond to the social question of gambling and where should we position ourselves and where should we think about how should we think about gambling as a social problem but also about our own lives and our own biblical understanding and attitude to gambling and i guess uh, the first thing to ask is what do we mean by gambling perhaps a definition would be helpful to start with yes well i'll do the negative definition first it's not just taking risk i mean you can use the word to mean taking risk all of life is taking risk you know, I mean, listening to this podcast is a risk. Uh, it's not that. Gambling is a game of chance aimed at money. It's a game of chance which plays for money. So some kind of activity in which the outcome is uncertain. Yes. Uh, even the, although... Random like, in a sense, you know. Not always be. completely random. Horse racing is not completely random, but you would say that Isn't horse it? racing is, is gambling. <laughs> yes, yes. There, are, there can be a game of skill. But the aim is the making of money. Great. Now, the focus of the discussion at the moment in our current context is on reducing the harm that gambling brings, the, the abuse of gambling, problem gambling. That's the issue. No, I don't think it's abuse of gambling. They may think it's abuse of gambling. I think gambling itself is abusive. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. But it is harm minimisation is you... the government's aim. Do you think that's something that Christians should be supporting, the minimisation of this harm? Is it a harm that we should be seeking to minimise? Well, uh, poker machines are terribly harmful to the individual and to the society. There can be very little doubt about it. The statistical information is so overwhelming. 
We have one state in Australia, Western Australia, that's never had poker machines, never had these gaming machines, and their profits, if you call them that, from gambling are radically different to every other state in Australia because they don't have poker machines because poker machines are where people lose millions upon millions, in fact, billions of dollars. And that means that there are some people who are suffering greatly in terms of their own life and, in a sense, worse, in terms of their family life. The children of gamblers uh, have a terrible life um, because the family income, the family wealth keeps on evaporating. Uh, Poker machines are designed to take all your money away from you. The longer you play the poker machine, the more money you lose. It's as simple as that. They're only geared to return a small percentage. If you take the small percentage of one and put it in again, it'll be a smaller percentage of that percentage and it takes it all in the end. And so it's like a voluntary taxation system, only the trouble is these machines are designed to be addictive. You don't have to understand much of Pavlovian kind of psychology to realise that the operant conditioning process that they are using will addict people into continuing to spend hours upon hours as they go through all their money on these these dreadful machines. It's also now been discovered, to the horror of the government, that money launderers are using poker machines to launder millions of dollars. And so... If you're not going to do something to protect these poor people who are addicted to these machines, they want to do something to stop the criminal classes laundering money and not paying the tax that they should to the government. So it's a real problem. It's a massive problem. And when you look at the distribution of poker machines in Sydney, it's in the poorest of suburbs that the vast number of poker machines are here. And our listeners from overseas or even from interstate may not understand that New South Wales has one of the highest per capita rates of poker machines in the world. There are other places. Nevada in the States has more. That's Las Vegas. That's Las Vegas. But there's only a couple of places. You do away with the places that are actually set up for gambling. Well, the places that come to mind for me are Atlantic City. In the on the east coast, uh, Macau, Macau in yeah, uh, southeast Asia, Monaco. You do away with those. New South Wales is top of the list. You know we have a poker machine for every eighty-five members of our society. It, it's an absurd amount. You know ninety thousand poker machines in, but most of them in the poorest parts of Sydney, taking money from the people who can least afford to be losing their money. It. it There is almost no justification that you can see for the poker machine industry, which although in one sense is very old because they've been around for a long time, really has only been in New South Wales in my lifetime. What is the history? Because these kinds of machines have been around for a while, but they haven't really become as common, as numerous and as much of a problem as they've become really in the last several decades, but how long have they been around? Well, in the 1890s, there were these poker machines, um, almost like a novelty in those times, and because they were not allowed to be used, they, they were set up where you put in tokens, and if you won, you were given a cigar or two cigars. If you got you know the, the big payout, you'd be given 50 cigars. And so you're not actually technically making money 
from the poker machines. I wonder if that's where we get our expression, sorry, no cigar. (laughs) When we don't don't win. I wonder. I don't know. Never know. I'll trace that one up. But after the Second World War, um, voluntary community clubs were a very important part of social cohesion. And the rich clubs, well, they had actual poker machines, but the police wouldn't go in and prosecute them. The poor clubs, well, the police would prosecute and destroy the machines. There's pictures of us actually putting sledgehammers through poker machines and so on. But because of the club's need for money and expansion in the 1950s, because of the growing wealth in the 1950s also, as the society reconstructed itself after the the Depression and two world wars, the government in 1956 allowed poker machines into not-for-profit community clubs. And then suddenly community clubs boomed. They became fabulously wealthy and they increased in numbers astronomically. And the argument was, well, the profits are not going elsewhere, the profits are going back into the community, both in terms of taxation to the to the state government, and so the state government liked it, but also in terms of, well, these clubs are for the bowling club or the football club or whatever it might be, the senior citizens club, and the, all the money will be going back into the community. There were lots of arguments in the 1950s of whether it was good or not. I, I laugh kind of, you know, the 1950s are supposed to be that hallmark bastion of conservatism and moral upright. We've got to stop this historical revisionism. It was a place of SP bookies and and criminal underworld and poker machines. Uh, they came in in the 1950s. The arguments, of course, were all utilitarian. You know, are they doing damage? How much damage? How many problem gamblers are there? No one really talked much about money laundering in those days. And the arguments went back and forward. The clubs, of course, and the politicians, they became addicted to poker machines. You said they were addictive. Yeah, they are totally addictive. And the, the poor problem gambler, yes, his problem is he's addicted to these machines. But what they didn't realise was the clubs became addicted because all their programmes relied and depended upon taking money from the poor problem gamblers. And the government took so much taxation from them and had these clubs doing so much service work for them instead of the government that the government became addicted to it. And the politicians became addicted because the hundreds of thousands of club members were called upon to tell the politicians not to touch poker machines because... They would vote against any party that was going to in any way restrict poker machines. And so the society itself became addicted to these dreadful machines. Some people suffering appallingly as a result of it. Suicides. But, you know, we won't talk about it. But that was the reality. As people's families were broken up, as people moved into criminality because of it, as lives and children were ruined by it. It was a disaster. The trouble with utilitarianism, you make a change in society and you do not know the consequence for a generation or two. 
by which time the addiction is so heavy you can't go back to where you were beforehand. And this is a classic of the hopelessness of utilitarianism making moral, political or social decisions because the evidence is not in until after the damage has been done. And it has been done so that we can now see all the political parties are beginning to see that actually we need to rein this in. Two things strike me from what you're saying. The first is that as a culture, because of our abandonment of of any objective or absolute morality, we we won't accept that there are some things that are just true and good in and of themselves, such that we might say gambling in and of itself is an unhelpful or harmful or morally unacceptable activity. Therefore, we, on the basis of that, we might make a decision. We no longer do that. We've abandoned any objective morality in our decision-making, which throws us back on utilitarianism, as you said. What are the, the only way we can judge whether this is something good to do or not is whether or not it's going to produce good consequences. But we just don't know. Yes, that's right. And in a sense, it's the obvious things that we, we can know this has to have these bad effects. But until research has shown us that, we don't believe the blindly obvious. I mean, gambling has always been there. Gambling has always corrupted sporting events, as gambling has always impoverished people. Gambling is always, by definition, antisocial and unloving. You don't really need to have much research to work out it's going to go badly. And it's going to have terrible consequences down the track. One of the bizarre stupidities, by the 1990s, the pubs were being undermined by the clubs because the clubs had poker machines. They had more money to provide better facilities. Cheaper meals. Than the hotels, which couldn't compete with them. Furthermore, there was more money to be made in a club than there was in a pub. And so pubs were threatened in going out of business. So the solution? <laughs> Their solution was very simple. Of course, put poker machines Means. into pubs. And just <laughs> so increase the problem. It massively expanded the problem from the 1990s onwards because now in every club and every pub in New South Wales, there are poker machines. So this is the second thing that was uh, striking me from what you were saying before. It's a really deep and endemic problem. It's now sort of knitted into the whole fabric of, of how our social uh, culture and, and, eco- and economy works. The yes. government would collapse without the gaming revenue. The clubs and the pubs would collapse without the gaming revenue. And so even though we're talking about harm minimization and trying to reduce the problems in people's lives, we've reached a point where doing what perhaps needs to be done, that is abolishing poker machines or making these things illegal, is almost impossible. Yes. And the crazy part is Western Australia never took them on. I mean, there are gaming machines in Western Australia in one place only, that is in the casino, right? But apart from that, they don't have them. And they've survived. Amazingly, (laughs) yes. Yes. Hello, all those in Western Australia. I know your life is better. (laughs) And... It's better because you don't have it. Singapore did the same. Singapore made very great restrictions about their their one casino that visitors can go to but locals can't because Lee Kuan Yew saw the damage that that gaming does, that uh, that gambling does. You'll never actually stop gambling. 
There's always SP bookies. There's a starting price bookies, people who just on the telephones making bets. You can't just stop people betting over, you know, which fly is going to go up the wall faster than the other. But legitimising it has expanded it unhelpfully and will always do so. What you're saying really is not only is the the intricate nature of how gambling and poker machines are bedded into our, our society makes it so difficult to unwind at this point. We must do what we can. But also, at a deeper level, you can't legislate away sin. No, you can't. But it's like slavery. When the whole economy was built on slavery, there came a point when people said, it's got to be done away with. <laughs> it's just wrong. And we know it's wrong. But yet, without the slaves, the British Empire wasn't going to work the European empires weren't going to work. And so they brought in legislation which did away with slavery by compensating slave owners to huge amounts of money. And now we look back at how these slave owners became so wealthy because they owned slaves, even though their slaves were taken from them. And you think, that was even bad. Well, this is the kind of problem there. How can we get rid of poker machines, well, only by compensating those pubs and clubs. You rely on that income, yeah. And who's bought them and paid licence fees for them and all the rest of it. But, you know, that is a dreadful thing to be doing too, isn't it? What is politically possible? It's not to cancel it. We should never open this door. Having opened it, the horse has bolted. It's impossible to shut it. And so what the government is doing is seeking to minimise its damage. The details of it don't matter. I mean, they're they're talking about using um, cards instead of money and things like that and uh, putting limits on how much a person can put on their card each week and so forth, and it's self-limiting. I hope their their plans are good and their program works. I don't know. I can only talk on the principle. What they're trying to do is as much as government can do because in the end, government cannot remove sinfulness. Why are Christians then anti-gambling? I guess it's kind of been implicit in much of what we've been saying, but why don't we get explicit about it? What is it about being involved in games of skill or chance for the making of money that is ungodly? Because it doesn't love my neighbour. You see, the two great commandments is to love God and love your neighbour. And this is a fundamentally unloving activity because what I'm trying to do is to get your money. That's what I'm trying to do. You can kind of institutionalise it and say, no, no, I'm not trying to get your money. I'm trying to get money from the the TAB, you know, the betting shop. But, of course, where did they get their money from? They got it from you. I'm still trying to get it from you. But it's also because of the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife, your neighbour's house, your neighbour's... We mustn't live in covetousness. This is fundamental covetousness. This is desiring to get my, what is not mine and not work for what is not mine. Uh, you see, work is a different thing. I am doing something for you. You are doing something for me. That is why I pay you for mowing my grass. That is why you pay me for painting your house. Uh, we're paying for a service that has been given But this is not that. This is me trying to take yours and you trying to take mine. Of course, you can say, but it's consensual. As if giving consent is the ultimate pinnacle of morality. 
frankly, it's about the pinnacle of pagan morality. And that is how pathetic the whole thing is. When consent is the high point of morality, you know the decadent have won. We could talk about that in terms of sexual consent, but in terms of gambling consent, the fact that you consent to be stupid does not give me the right to stop loving you. In fact, the fact that you are so slow-witted as to be willing to gamble on a hopeless case, such as poker machines, that means you are a vulnerable person that I really should take extra care to love and to protect you from such stupidity. One of the practical areas that often confronts us as Christians in this whole area is schools where quite frequently the way of raising money is to have some kind of raffle, to have some kind of... (laughs) In fact, I grew up in a Catholic school, um, going to a Catholic school where the annual carnival we had every year to raise money for the school was one big gamble-a-thon. There was the chocolate wheel. There was everything. How, as as parents and as Christians, how do we respond to these little seemingly harmless things like the kid comes home with the raffle tickets? Yes. For, while my children were at school, a long time ago, I was always on the Parents and Citizens Club. I went to it. Hardly anybody did, but I went to it. And every time the raffle came up, I protested. Um, every time I said, I will make a donation equal to a book of raffle tickets, but I will not take the raffle tickets because I think that is educationally disastrous. Instead of teaching my children to be generous by getting them to give some money into the common purse of the school, which I was happy to do, as parents should be happy to do, I was teaching my children that the only way to make a donation to the school was in the hope of winning a raffle, of winning money. I was teaching children that gambling was perfectly all right and denying them the opportunity of hearing that generosity is all right. And so I always protested, and over the seven years I was on PNC, not once did I win. My kids always thought I was a bit weird to oppose the raffle tickets. Oh, for that reason? I thought there were other reasons, but okay. Plenty. One of the many reasons my kids (laughs) thought I was weird and would roll their eyes at me at times was when I gave my annual lecture about gambling and raffle tickets. But that's what parents have to do. You have to teach. You have to run against the tide of what everyone else is doing. And it kind of connects with our conversation about education a couple of weeks ago, doesn't it? Yes. And it's an important part of education that my children learn that we are different, that we are not just part of this pagan society, that we stand for values and morals and attitudes. Um, But I did have to protect the children a little bit through the PNC, making sure that my children were not singled out for any kind of discriminatory behaviour or attitude expressed by the teachers as they gave out raffle tickets. I think a child needs a bit of defence from their parents in this regard. But I made it so clear in the PNC that we weren't to have raffles that uh, they did walk around my children very carefully and cautiously. Okay, it might be a good point to sort of draw this conversation to a close, I think. Would you like to summarise where we've come to and what you think we should do as Christians? I think we should be voting for any government that is trying to minimise the harm of gambling and hope that whatever mechanisms they have in mind will, in fact, minimise the harm. But secondly, I think it's really important to understand that harm minimisation is just an expression of the frailty and inability of the government 
to really do the work of teaching the ways of God or of implementing the ways of God or in any way restricting the sinfulness of humanity. And thirdly, it is so important for Christians to have a morality, have an ethics, have a way of life that is dramatically different to society around about us. It's called holiness. We live differently and expect to live differently. And fourthly, that's especially in loving our neighbour and not loving money, whereas gambling always involves not loving my neighbour and loving money. So we must never participate or encourage or allow it to be seen that gambling is in any way a good thing rather than just what it is, plain old-fashioned sin. Well, as always, if you have questions or comments about our conversation today on Two Ways News, please don't hesitate to get in touch. We really do love to hear from you uh, and to interact with your with your questions and feedback. You can write to me at tonyjpain at me.com and please don't hesitate to do that. Well, Philip, as we conclude today, we should finish in prayer. You always finish in prayer, but how about, how about I finish in prayer today Good. and pray for some of those things you just mentioned. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you call us to love you and to love our neighbour. And we're saddened, Father, that as we see the sinfulness of our culture and society in so many ways and in our own lives where we fail to love our neighbour. And this problem of gambling in our culture is a terrible example of that. Father, we do pray that in your mercy you would restrain the wickedness and the consequences of this evil and that you would empower and enable the governments that you put in place to act wisely and justly in limiting the harm that is being done. But most of all, Father, we pray that you'd help us as your people with changed hearts through the gospel of your Son to not love money, but to love other people as your creations, to give and be generous and not to be covetous and to seek what we can get for ourselves, perhaps through gambling. Father, we pray that we'd have the courage to be holy and different and to do so, Father, because we know that you've saved us and bought us and made us your distinct people through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen.